0: Welcome to the CTA Podcast. Join us as we critically examine the ideological capture of the psychotherapy field. Here we discuss better common humanity proposals for a fairer society. Our discussions are thought-provoking. And our guests are from diverse backgrounds bringing unique perspectives to the table. This is the CTA Podcast with your hosts, Yaku van Sale. And Christine Sifan. Hello everyone, my name is Val Thomas. I'm a UK-based psychotherapist and writer and I'm the editor of the recently released CTA book titled Cynical Therapies, Perspectives on the Anti-Therapeutic Nature of Critical Social Justice. In this short piece, I want to offer some reflections on a chapter that I contributed on critical social justice and the therapeutic relationship. I'm going to summarise the arguments that I present in the chapter, where I make the case that critical social justice is antithetical to the therapeutic relationship. And I also want to pick up on and expand on something I address briefly, which is how traditional established therapies can respond to the challenge presented by this ideology in a productive way. But before I do this, I I do want to remind us of how we in the therapy field have come to the conclusion that it's the relationship established between therapist and client that is all important. Uh, It's necessary, I think, because we've reached a point where the um, therapeutic relationship has almost become a trope. Now, I've been a counsellor educator, and it was a very rare occurrence for me to mark an essay, which did not pretty early on, no matter what the focus, refer to the importance of the relationship. In fact, it almost seems as if it's reached the point that just by mentioning the therapeutic relationship or therapeutic alliance, that this mentioned just by itself sets a seal of authority on whatever is being put forward and this is the case for all of the therapy approaches no matter how different. So critical social justice driven academic writing on therapy are no exception to this and sometimes they use the words um, therapeutic alliance instead of therapeutic relationship and these words will usually appear early on providing a stamp of approval. An uncontested legitimacy to whatever follows. It's almost like a magical spell. But there's no exploration ever provided of how exactly a political ideology, such as critical social justice, can be integrated with a psychotherapeutic theory with regard to this ground of relationship. Before we go into this, I'm, I'm going to digress slightly and recall why we have come to view the therapeutic relationship as the ground of the professions, and crucially how this understanding has developed out of a research program. So in the early days of psychotherapy, before the Second World War, theorists within the two main modalities, which were psychoanalytic and behaviorist, believed, understandably enough, that The reason why their therapies were effective was due to the application of the school's theories to clinical practice. If you didn't apply them correctly, then the therapy wouldn't work. Then in 1952, Hans Eysenck came along and published a paper which exploded this idea. And he showed there was no difference in outcomes when you compared the patients admitted to hospital with major depression, one group having no treatment and one group having a psychoanalytical um, therapy treatment. And the inference that psychoanalysis was of no particular benefit galvanized the whole therapy field into a research bush. So by we reach the early 1970s, large scale trials in particular had established that generally, uh, talking therapies were effective. But another conundrum was thrown up in the course of this. There was no obvious differences between the therapeutic approaches in terms of results. This begged the question, if they are all equally effective, then what are the common factors across all the therapies? And research established that it was the quality of the therapeutic relationship that mattered, confirming Carl Rogers' earlier research. So since the last decade of the 20th century, this notion of the ground of therapy being the relationship or alliance between therapist and client is completely accepted. So along comes critical social justice and in order for this to be inserted into the therapy field it will need to present itself as standing on the same universal ground of the therapeutic relationship now rather obviously critical social justice should be faced with a bit of a problem here as this ideology does not appear to foster positive productive relationships In fact, we could go one step further and note how poorly human relationships fare in any context once this ideology is introduced. Think about DEI trainings, that's a key application of critical social justice, and all those reports of manipulative, bullying, struggle sessions. One that jumps to mind is the image of the DEI training at Sandia National Laboratories, which designs America's nuclear weapons. Humiliated senior executives were forced to write down and then read out male privilege statements and make public apologies to women harmed through patriarchy. Or there are the countless examples of divisive tactics used in particularly in US schools where students are separated into Uh, racial affinity groups. In fact, critical social justice could be characterized as anti-relational. It appears to facilitate thinking and psychological states which are counterproductive to healthy relationships, including psychological projection, automatically impugning negative intent to others, superficially judging people On their immutable characteristics, etc., etc. So, how has critical social justice driven therapy been able to present itself as standing on relational ground, just like the rest of the approaches? And the answer is by deploying its usual rhetorical strategies and cancelling tactics. In postmodernism, Language generates social reality, so critical social justice can just assert that it is relational. Any objection can be silenced through characterising critics as bigots. Thus, you will see critical social justice therapists and clinicians assert the importance of the therapeutic alliance as a matter of course, and the rest of the field just goes along with it. The requirement to scrutinise this implicit claim is long overdue. In my chapter, I make a start by identifying not just one, but three main irreconcilable incompatibilities between critical social justice-driven therapy and relational therapeutic practice. The first one I'll just touch on briefly, the idea that Critical social justice-driven therapy is just another therapeutic approach in a pluralistic field. If all the other therapies rest on the ground of the relationship, then surely there should be no issue with CSJ therapy doing the same. But this argument doesn't work because critical social justice is not different in degree, but instead is fundamentally different due to its worldview. And I explain this through recourse to hermeneutics, this being a fancy term for the interpretive frame used to make sense of the world. Each therapeutic approach, informed by different philosophies as a characteristic way of making sense of the world, its particular hermeneutic will shape both the theory and practice. So, I mean, this happens at an individual level. So for example, if you, listener, employ a hermeneutic of charity, then you would interpret the world around you through that lens. You'll give people the benefit of the doubt, for example, and you wouldn't subscribe to notions of microaggressions. I'm sure, listener, that you can instantly summon up family members or colleagues who employ very different hermeneutics, more uncharitable ones. So each of the main therapeutic schools has a particular interpretive frame. And this shapes how the school views the therapeutic relationship. For example, the psychodynamic school employs a hermeneutic of suspicion. Nothing is what it appears to be on the surface. So the therapeutic relationship becomes a vehicle for disclosing what is hidden or unconscious. Another example would be the humanistic existential school, which employs a hermeneutic of authenticity. Everything is an attempt to get as close as possible to the real experience. So the therapeutic relationship is the vehicle for increasing authentic real engagement with the other person and the self. And I explain this in more detail in the chapter. So critical social justice will also have a way of making sense of the world. And it reads everything through the lens of power, who has it, who doesn't have it, the oppressor and the oppressed. So in its case, it's the hermeneutic of oppression. Everything is interpreted through this lens. And the therapeutic relationship can be no exception. The relationship between the therapist and the client will be seen as an interaction between oppressor and oppressed identities. Now, if a relationship is purely based on power relations, as in this case, there's no space for any other kind of relating or connection. So this is a very limited and reductive view of relationship. But of course, there's more freighted onto this view of relationship that distinguishes critical social justice driven therapy from the other approaches. This ideology is not informed by modernity with its focus on the individual. Instead, it has a collective worldview. It is postmodern. It doesn't arise out of the philosophical traditions that inform the main traditional therapy approaches. So even more significantly, the client-therapist relationship is not between two unique individuals, but between two avatars of group identities or more usually intersected identities. So the nature of the relationship between therapist and client is already predetermined by their already existing identities. Therapists can only position themselves in in relation to their clients based on an oppressor-oppressed narrative. It's impossible to transcend these limitations because critical social justice discounts the universal nature of human experience. This is not the ground for any kind of relational process as would be traditionally understood is rigid and formulaic. And if that weren't bad enough, we come to the third and final factor that prevents any claims that this CSJ driven approach can make that it uses relationship for therapeutic purposes. This ideology has a political objective derived from critical theory which is to recruit the client to an ideological position and consequently political activism. So in other words it's a cynical operation. The relationship or therapeutic alliance is established to serve the therapists political activist goals. Now, if you think I'm being hyperbolic, then consider this direction from the American Psychological Association's guidelines from 2017. And these are the guidelines on multicultural practice. They recommend that the psychologist actively fosters conversations with clients about their different identities. It's suggested. But any resistance to self-disclosure on the client's part is something that needs to be overcome. A range of strategies is offered in order to bring the client around. This is a direct quote, such as clinician authenticity, tone, spontaneity, and patience with stumbling. The client's stumbling. End of quote. Note, that no possibilities allowed for any legitimate objection to engaging in this mutual disclosure of identities. So we can see here that manipulative techniques are being recommended in order to get the client to comply with the therapist's agenda. All in all, critical social justice driven therapy represents complete betrayal of the relational ethos of therapy it doesn't stand on the same ground as the other therapeutic approaches it is as i said before a cynical operation okay now i want to do a 180 degree pivot and say something about how the therapy field can respond positively to this challenge see the reality is that critical social justice is exploiting a flaw in traditional therapies, or maybe better understood as an undeveloped aspect, underdeveloped aspect. And this aspect is the collective stroke, contextual stroke, social dimension of relating. And I refer to this gap in the introductory chapter, which attempts to answer the question as to why the therapy field has allowed itself to be taken over by a political ideology. So, absolutely, there are very good reasons for traditional therapies to call out the anti-relational nature of critical social justice and, importantly, erect strong defences against it. But it's equally important not to get trapped into a fixed oppositional stance. In the first section of this book, my colleagues write about the ways in which theory and concepts developed within social psychology and psychotherapy can be usefully applied in order to critique critical social justice. But we can also draw on these concepts to help us think about the therapy field itself. The psychodynamic concept of splitting warns us against falling into the trap of a reductive good, bad, right, wrong position. Jungian ideas about the shadow, and that's the unintegrated and unconscious opposite to what is being consciously proclaimed. We need to take these ideas seriously. Is there a possibility that this anti-relational authoritarian ideology is a manifestation of the shadow of the conscious relational ethos of therapy? So what is this message that critical social justice is delivering? Maybe an important message is, how can traditional therapies expand theory and practice in a way that incorporates these collective dimensions of the self more productively? So in this chapter, I end by considering how the collective intercultural dimensions of relating can be more fully integrated into therapy practice, not by becoming the main focus, as in critical social justice and thus reductive and narrow, but in a much more balanced, realistic, and non-ideological way. The collective, cultural, contextual dimensions of relating operate in all relationships and have the potential to come to the foreground or recede to the background. I mean, think about your own relationships. There'll be points in relating to another human being when cultural differences, I mean the widest possible sense here, I mean sex, gender, ethnicity, sexuality etc, these cultural differences impinge. So in my chapter I identify one particular starting point for this endeavour and that is Petruska Clarkson's Five Relationship Framework and this was developed as a response to attempt to develop integrative therapy approaches which could incorporate the different views of the therapeutic relationship. Her framework postulates five different types of relationship that operate in therapy and it models the ever-changing fluid way in which different types of relationship come to the fore dependent on need. I don't have the space to talk about this in any detail. It's laid out in the chapter. But we can see how this translates into our everyday, ever-changing relationships with people close to us. Think about it. One moment, we are collaborating on a task together. and Clarkson calls this the adult-to-adult relationship. Then, seemingly, out of nowhere, an argument breaks out. And later on, you realize you are unconsciously reacting to your partner as a critical parent. Clarkson calls this the transferential and counter-transferential relationship. And then everything calms down as you apologize and make yourself vulnerable. And Clarkson calls this the real relationship. So Clarkson's model of relating has become a standard one in integrative therapy because it offers a means of incorporating the different types of relationships theorized in therapy. And of course it it makes intuitive sense. Now, this framework was developed in the 20th century and consequently doesn't include the intercultural collective dimensions of relating. But this could be expanded to include a sixth relationship type, the missing one, the intercultural relationship. This is the moment in the ever-flowing relationship when you experience separated off from the person you're relating to because a cultural difference intrudes. And developing this framework along these lines affords very significant advantages. It offers a way of including both the individual and collective dimensions of relating. It is much more fully inclusive. It would allow therapists who take the more universalist stance, such as colour blindness, to also accommodate the limitations of such a view. There are times when this universalist stance prevents you from grasping. What could be intruding into the relationship? So, this development uh, would include both intrapsychic and social dimensions of the relationship. We need both. So, to end, what is the message of this chapter on the therapeutic relationship? So, let's not mince words here. Critical social justice has no place whatsoever in the therapy professions. It is anti-relational. It undermines the therapeutic relationship, the very ground that traditional and established therapy approaches stand upon. Thank you.